We have an interesting uh, text this morning uh, in that um, Samuel chapter 3, on the one hand, is as ancient as Scripture can get. For one thing, it is in the Old Testament, so that right there puts it about 3,000 years removed from us in the past. Uh, secondly, the, the language that 1 Samuel 3 and a lot of those whole books I'll use, the language of sacrifice and priests and, and the tabernacle, uh, couldn't be further from our experience of, of Christianity or of religion in general. And finally, upon first reading, there doesn't seem to be anything really applicable directly to us from this passage of Scripture. So you might be tempted, unless you really love Hebrew history, to just kind of say, well, this is one of those passages I can go on autopilot and check out until we come across something that's more practical for my life, right? On the other hand, uh, 1 Samuel 3 is, is addressing an issue that is as, as modern and relevant, that, uh, that's a question that's being asked by many people today, Christian or not Christian, and that is the question, does God still speak to us? Does God still speak to us? That's something that is, is a very relevant question. As a matter of fact, I guarantee you, you can have some really lively conversations. If you just ask a coworker or a classmate or even a stranger at Starbucks, right? Everyone loves to get their opinion asked of them. Hey, what do you think? Does God still speak today? Very important question. I think 1 Samuel chapter 3 clearly says yes, but it also answers some questions that flow out of answering that first question. It answers a total of four questions for us this morning. So the questions we're going to see this morning in 1 Samuel 3 are number one, does God still speak? That's in verse one. Number two, does, how does God still speak? Number three, what's our responsibility when God speaks? And then number four, what's the benefit of having God speak? So it actually, when you think about it, it goes in a very logical order. Does God still speak? If He does, how then does He speak? If God is speaking and this is how He speaks, is there a responsibility we have when God speaks? And is there a benefit at all for having God speak to us? So that's the way we're going to go. I think that's what 1 Samuel chapter 3 answers for us. I'm going to ask the Lord to bless the teaching of His Word, and we'll just jump right in. Father, we thank You that we know in many ways You have already spoken to Your people. The songs we have sung this morning have really been significant. The lyrics we have just pondered about, the prayers that have been prayed, uh, the fellowship we've shared already has reminded us that You speak constantly to Your people. My prayer right now, Lord, is that You would give us ears like Samuel to hear when You do speak. There are so many voices in our world all clamoring for our attention, uh, voices that are insignificant and trivial at best, voices that will lead to our harm at worst. So, Father, give us ears. Let your people have ears to hear. Your, your son promised that your sheep know your voice. Let us hear your voice as clearly coming through for Samuel 3, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you don't have a Bible already, make sure you're open to 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, eight years have passed. If you were with us last week, we were closing up chapter 2, verse 11 to 436. Eight years have passed since then, since this mysterious man of God confronted Eli and his, the wickedness of his sons. Eight years have passed since the, the final verse in chapter 2 to the next verse in chapter 3. It's amazing how much time flies in the biblical text. We know that partly because of Samuel's responsibilities. We hear about him opening up the sanctuary and kind of being a proxy for Eli. We also know that from history. Uh, Josephus, the Roman, or excuse me, the Jewish historian in his work, The Antiquities, uh, agreed 
agrees with the Jewish understanding that Samuel was probably between 10 and 12 years of age as we get to chapter 3. So that would put him about eight years after when he was a little toddler. You remember at the beginning of chapter 2, cute little toddler, his mom Hannah would faithfully sew him a robe every year and bring it up with her and Elkanah at their annual pilgrimage. Well, Samuel now is about 12 years of age. And we're not surprised as we get into chapter 3 to read the first verse of how this chapter opens up. Chapter uh, 3, verse 1, the end of verse 1 says this, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There were no frequent visions. That's a very ominous tone to strike uh, when you're writing about the priests and the, the religious life of Israel, that the word of God was rare. There was no frequent visions. Based on that, we can be pretty confident that our very first question that we have this morning was just as relevant to these Israelites 3,000 years ago as it is to us. Does God still speak? You get a sense uh, from Eli's questioning uh, of young Samuel in verse 17 of the desperation of the people of Israel. Eli, uh, in his, his urgency in speaking to this young priest boy, is demanding to know, what did God say? Look at verse 17. There's a desperation in the way he's actually threatening this young boy. Verse 17, and Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he has told you. Can I get a sense Eli's a little bit wound up tightly here? Because the word of God was rare. There was no word coming from God. And so here is this young boy priest who gets God to speak to him. The desperation in Eli's voice, you can hear it there. He's, he's, he's threatening this young priest boy, tell me everything God said or I'm cursing you. So there's a desperation that not only grips Eli, but probably grips the entire nation. You see, because God's word was very important. As a Christian, there are no questions. There are a few questions more important than this one, and the Hebrews knew that very well. You see, to the Hebrews, the Word of God um, wasn't just some kind of intellectual content that you heard about at Sabbath or, you know, at the synagogue, and, and you kind of went and drank coffee and talked about it. You know, what do you think about that interpretation? I'm not so sure. What do you think about this? It wasn't just in, in information to, to debate about. The Word of God was life itself. That's always what Scripture teaches about itself. It's one of the most radical claims of Christianity, that God's Word, these words, are actually life-imparting. So much so that at the end of his life and ministry, Moses said in the Pentateuch, in Deuteronomy 32, 47, it's on the screens behind me, he says, for it, speaking of God's Word, is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. Jesus would reaffirm the same thing in the Gospel of John in chapter 6 and verse 63. Jesus would say, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So historically, God's people always viewed God's word as life-giving. But you see, the Bible, the Bible is just not just a better uh, fortune cookie kind of thing. It's not that God's Word brings life in the same way that living by good moral axioms will bring you life. 
we have them all over the place, right? So a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You've heard that one before, if you, especially if you like to hunt. Um, or um, two wrongs don't make a right, right? Or my, my favorite one that I have no idea why people think this comes from the Bible, God helps those who help themselves, right? That, none of that's in the Bible, by the way, as far as I know, but the point is, God's Word gives life not in the same way that living by good moral axioms will bring you life. It's qualitatively different. While it's true, particularly in the wisdom literature, that there's a lot from Scripture that gives us practical, witty understanding of how to live life, that's not what we mean when we say God's Word gives life. You don't go, have to go further than the first book of the Bible, the first chapter of the Bible, to run up against this re- reality that when God wants to create everything, what does He do? He speaks. God's Word literally gives life as it goes out. And probably one of the most um, vivid and amazing displays of this is found in the book of Ezekiel chapter 37. God's prophet is having this amazing vision of a valley, and in this valley there's nothing but dried up bones. And God asks His prophet, says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says that the, probably the best thing we can always just say to God, well, I, you know, I mean, you know ultimately if anything can happen. And God says to his prophet to illustrate the power and efficacy of his word. He says, Ezekiel, prophesy to these dry bones. Give them my words. And as Ezekiel starts to speak the word of God into this valley of dry bones, the most amazing and somewhat graphic texts of Scripture that sinews start to come back and and flesh begins to grow. And what was just a valley of skeletal remains is a valley of full-fledged human beings, the illustration being. And he goes on to say in Ezekiel 37 that he's giving a new covenant to humanity, the point being that God's word actually imparts life to God's people. That's why if you're you're new to going to a church, if you're new to visiting Christ Community Church, that's why if you might have noticed in reading our, our words on the screen during our singing, God's Word is the central theme of our singing. That's why God's Word is the central theme of our praying together, both corporately and individual. That's why uh, around South Orange County this week, 15 groups are going to be gathering, our growth groups, discussing God's Word is because God's Word brings life to God's people. That's why next week at uh, 1045, I'm going to be here preaching God's Word again, and the week after that, and the week after that. That's why from this church, from this pulpit, well, lectern, uh, God's Word has been preached for the last 2,340 weeks. For the last 45 years, God's Word has gone out from this church nonstop. Can you imagine that? Every week for the last 2,300 weeks, roughly about 9 o'clock, God's Word was going out. And for the next 2,000 weeks, we pray by God's grace at roughly 9 o'clock and 1045 or whatever it might be, God's Word will be continuing to go out because the Word of God brings life. You know, I love our reflection services. We'll have one coming up real soon here. And if you're paying attention, it's a great display of how God's Word brings life as we literally grab the microphone and go around talking about how is God working in your life. Hebrews knew that. There's no question more important, no answer more comforting than knowing that God still speaks today. But 
if God still speaks today, then the next question that follows after that is in how does God speak? How does God speak? And that's where we have verse, verses 2 through 10. And, and, and what's interesting about these verses that, that Jen read for us, I, I think it's that the fact that Samuel doesn't recognize God's voice immediately, did you catch that? He, he doesn't get God's voice. And as a matter of fact, in verse 7, it's, it's almost as if the author is anticipating the reader's anxiety because this is a pivotal chapter. This is a pivotal chapter in Israel's history that's going from a time of the book of Judges when no one listened to the Word of God. They were all very religious, but nobody listened to the Word of God. To now it pivots from the book of Samuel out. God's Word plays a pivotal role in the life of the people. And there's this anxiety, will that fall apart? Will God's plan fall apart? Because Samuel's not getting it. God's calling him, Samuel doesn't recognize it. So it's as if the author anticipates the anxiety and explains it for us in verse 7. Now Samuel, because he misunderstood three times up to this point, did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So he's saying, don't worry, it's going to work out. Samuel just doesn't know the Lord. What he means to say is, up to that point, Samuel, the young boy priest, had never received audibly the word of God this way. And so he was kind of breaking in his training wheels, so to speak. But it's interesting that Samuel thinks that God calling him is actually Eli. So it's not that God shows up. Samuel, this is God. <laughs> he hears Samuel. He thinks it's Eli. Not once, not twice, three times. When God is speaking and communicating to his prophet, it's so unassuming and so subtle that he thinks it's his, it, it, Eli, who's almost his father figure. You know, I think this is a very important point in that God's working in our lives is, is more often than not a combination of something that's amazingly supernatural in character, but very ordinary and commonplace in its, in its appearance. I think this is a really important thing we need to get because a lot of times, I think, in culturally speaking, we have a misunderstanding, and you might see this out there, that either people over-spiritualize the things of God they over-rationalize the things of God. And because of that, they often miss how God is most working in the world today. And so, so God is this very mysterious and mystical being. You can never know Him. He exists in some kind of light that we can never have access to. You can't personally know Him. You can't attain to Him. You just have to guess and hope that somehow you're living right according to the way He wants you to be. Or that God is completely explainable and actually just predictable. I mean, as a matter of fact, God is a figment of humanity's imagination. We need a way to explain things, and so we created this thing called God or gods. I mean, the Bible is written by men, so that can't be from God. The church has got all kinds of problems, so that clearly can't be the way God's going to work. And so we either over-spiritualize God or, or we kind of rationalize Him. But when you stop and think about it, what could be more amazing and astounding than the living God, the Almighty of the universe, revealing Himself, but more common and mundane than to do it in a book? Right? Or what could be more significant, more impressive than the Creator of life taking on human form, but yet so unimpressive and so insignificant to take on the human form of a poor Jewish child to poor Jewish parents? God does these amazing things in the most ordinary way. 
And if we're not dialed into that, we will often miss the way God is working in our own lives. Now, if you're a note taker, write down um, Matthew chapter 11. There's a situation that Jesus is making the same kind of point in that in Matthew 11, Jesus says to the spiritual leaders of Israel, he says, look, John the, John the Baptist came and he neither drank nor eat, eat, and you called him a demon. I come and I drink and I eat and you call me a drunker and a glutton. In other words, they didn't have a category for God himself being very much like them in a certain kind of way. And, and we have that difficulty, and Jesus is a perfect example of that. In other words, He is different enough from us, being that He is God, that He can speak into life and humanity in ways that confronts our sin and points us to a different way, but not so radically different that we can uh, over-spiritualize Him and call Him a, a mythology and a deity, kind of like the Roman gods or the Greek gods. Yet He is just as much a man like us, so that we have to take Him seriously different enough from us where we can't just say he's another moral great teacher like a bunch of other moral great teachers. He's this unique combination, the God-man, of this supernatural reality crashing and colliding with ordinary humanity. And we see that in the way God is calling Samuel. And like Samuel, if we're not dialed into, oftentimes that's how God works in ways that we might miss as, as ordinary but it's extraordinary because this is the way God has chosen to communicate. We could miss out. Now, notice in chapter 3, go to verse 21. I'm going to go push past a little bit, verse 19. It's an amazing verse, says it all. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. What's that last phrase? By the word of the Lord. Notice. He didn't choose a burning bush this time. It wasn't an angelic choir. It was just the word of the Lord coming to Samuel. And the Old Testament, to make that point, says 222 times, this is how God, the word of the Lord came. The word of the Lord comes. The word of the Lord came. There is something amazing about the word of God, the word of the Lord coming to his people. Now, you could say, well, there's a lot of debate around Scripture. Can we believe that it's true? And the reality is there is no argument in academia, manuscript scholars. There's no argument at all that, there's this, that this text is unlike any other text in antiquity, okay? There is none. You can read the academic journals. There's no argument or question that this text is unusual amongst all texts in antiquity, right? That's not to say that it's true. That's a different argument. We need to be really clear and precise in our arguments. That's a different thing than saying that it's true. My point is, there's no argument that there's no other book like this out there. If you compare the manuscript evidence, it's astounding, the manuscript evidence that exists just for the New Testament alone. I believe Homer's Iliad, and I don't know if we have any you know, manuscript scholars out there. Homer's Iliad, you're familiar with that. It's about 80 at the most extant manuscripts so that we know that this was actually a real story. The New Testament has over 14,000 just of the New Testament. So in terms of manuscript, nothing compares. In terms of archaeological evidence, you know, you just turn the spade over in Israel and you're finding something that proves a page in Scripture. Uh, in terms of the predictive prophecy of, of when we know things were said and when they've come to fulfillment, and we can date that because we have the manuscripts, we have all that, it's astounding. 
In terms of just the possibility of this book existing, right? Three different languages over 1,500 years, 40 different authors from shepherds to, to kings who wrote it, most of which never met each other, yet none of which contradict each other and all tell one overarching theme throughout. You cannot, now I'm not saying that, that doesn't say that this is God's word, right? I want to be very clear. What I'm saying is any reasonable person has to say the evidence is overwhelming that this book is unlike anything else in history, right? That, so let's just say that. So when we say the word of the Lord came, any reasonable person has to say there's something unusual then about this text that the Old Testament keeps holding out. Now, so that's the first point of, 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 of chapter 3, verses 2 through 8. I find it very amazing that God's way of working and communicating with His people is often in very amazing ways in ordinary guise, most predominantly Scripture. The second point that I find amazing is that, I, isn't it neat that God is so patient with Samuel? God doesn't seem to get upset. Like, really? You can't tell my voice from Eli, the wicked high priest? God's just patient. Not once, not twice, not three times, four times he calls him. God doesn't throw up his hands and go, clearly you're not the prophet I thought you were or else you'd know who I was. He just keeps calling. And I'll bet you he would have kept calling and calling until Samuel understood. I think it's very comforting that as long as we are at least willing to hear, God is willing to continue to speak and God is willing to continue to give people his word. And the way he does it most predominantly, as the Old Testament teaches us, is from the word of the Lord, 222 times the word of the Lord coming to his people. Now, if we know that God does speak and how he speaks most predominantly is through his word, the next question we have to ask is, is there a responsibility to us when God speaks? And we see that in verses 11 through 18. What is our responsibility when God speaks? Look at verse 11 of our passage. Verse 11 then the Lord said to Samuel, I just love the way the Bible talks. Nobody talks like this anymore. Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears will tingle. In other words, God is saying to Samuel now, he is reaffirming the prophecy that the man of God in chapter 2 brought to Eli. He's saying the same thing. This is going to happen. Something so shocking that everyone who hears it, their ears will actually tingle because they're blown away that this actually happened. Imagine getting this message at 12 years of age. 12 years of age and you are told to confront the most powerful man in your nation, the man who represents the voice of God. This is a lot in that little kid's wagon at 12 years of age. It was a hard message. It was so difficult, Samuel couldn't sleep the rest of the night. Look at verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. He didn't go back to sleep. He couldn't go back to sleep, and he was afraid to do it. Look at the end of verse 15. He was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. See, the responsibility when the Word of God comes to you is very clear. It's just to be faithful, to speak it, and faithful to conform your life to it. See, God's Word does bring life to us, but God's Word also brings judgment, doesn't it? And this is a lesson that Eli and the people of Israel, now we need to understand, God's Word always brings life to us when we embrace it and submit our lives to it, but God's Word, that same Word, will bring a word of judgment if we reject it and deny it. 
Every faithful Christian knows this tension. And like Samuel, you will deliver God's Word because truth is at stake, but you're going to deliver it with compassion because you love the people it's being delivered to, right? There's nothing more... um, distasteful, and we see it all the time on the news and on these protests, and they, right, why, do the, why does the camera always get that angry Christian, right? But they are oftentimes right in the sense that we cannot deliver God's truth without a sense of compassion. So we're compelled to deliver it because we know it's truth on the line, but you deliver it with compassion because you love the person that you're giving God's Word to. And we have to do both. We cannot kind of back off on one or the other if we're going to be faithful to God. If we're going to be faithful to the responsibility God gives to us, we've got to present His truth because it's His truth on the line, but we've got to do so with compassion because God loves those whom He's sending His truth to. This dual tension of delivering God's Word is the dual tension of the gospel when you think about it. The gospel is bad news first before it is what? The good news, right? What's it good news for if there's no bad news? And, you know, so often, if you just kind of think around the world that we live in, the gospel's not getting fair representation. There's a lot about the gospel that's being pushed out there as a way to get your life better. You know, you can have your best life now or whatever Olstein puts out there. There's a ton of books like that. You can go to a Christian bookstore and read a lot of books that's promoting one aspect of the gospel. And yes, I did say someone's name because I believe when someone's distorting truth, we need to be upfront about that, but we need to be compassionate about it. When was the last time you've actually heard someone talk about the gospel? If you are a Christian and you have friends that claim to be Christians, ask them that question. Hey, what's the gospel to you? What is the gospel? Now, I don't mean to make it relativistic by saying, what's the gospel to you? What I'm trying to get you to say is, that's an important question because in our culture today, Chances are you're going to hear a lot of, um, uh, I guess, spiritual language that's just vaguely ambiguous. You'll hear things like journey, uh, life path, a walk I'm on. More spiritual ambiguous language comes out and less and less the, the biblical terms from Scripture, terms that you might hear normally like sin, grace, God's wrath, God's justice, my sin, my Savior. Do not be deceived by our our culture's penchant for spiritual ambiguity for the concrete claims of the gospel, because there couldn't be more on the line than getting the gospel correct. The gospel is a word of life and blessing as much as it is a word of judgment, and it depends on whether or not we receive it or reject it. So our responsibility then is to submit, when God's word comes, is to submit our lives to it even if it's a hard word, like Eli. Eight years earlier, I had said it passed when the man of God confronted Eli. Eight years had passed, and yet Eli's spiritual passivity did not change. He still did not confront his wicked sons from abusing the people and holding God's offering in contempt. Eight years had passed, and I believe had Eli repented Before the Lord, like the city of Nineveh did, God would have withheld His judgment. But eight years had passed. It was a severe judgment that God brought, but it was a severe mercy to Eli, but Eli did not turn. And now, God is letting this young priest Samuel say, let Eli know 
that that thing I mentioned to him eight years ago, that he did nothing about, that he still honored his sons over me, even though I told him what would happen, is going to come to pass. And now, did you notice it? Nothing will change it. Neither sacrifice, nothing will change it now. Now, going back to verse 1, it says that the word of the Lord was rare. That can happen for two reasons. It can be rare because God is no longer giving His word, but it can also be rare because people are no longer hearing His word. Remember I said, this is a very significant chapter because it closes the door on a nation and on a people and on a priest who would not hear the word of the Lord, and it opens the door to a priest, a new nation, and a soon coming king that would hear the word of the Lord. It was a turn in redemptive history. Samuel was now the first of the prophets that would start a whole office of the prophets that would climax in Jesus Christ himself. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, it's on the screens behind me, long ago, the writer says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. By the way, if you recall, John's gospel in the very first chapter, verse 1 and verse 14, calls Jesus the Word. I just want you to put a pin in that because that's significant. The writer of Hebrews says, look, in the past, God spoke to our people through prophets. Now, He spoke to us through His Son. And John says, this Son is the very Word itself. You see, God's grace is always God's Word going forth. God's grace is you actually hearing His Word. Have you thought about that? That God's grace is actually you hearing the Word of God this morning. Now, when I mean by hearing, I mean it in the way that parents always say to their kids, are you hearing me? Right? You You don't mean by that statement, are the sounds that are coming out of my vocal cords bouncing on your eardrums? That's not what you're saying. You're saying, do you get, do you understand what I'm trying to communicate such that it changes the way you live? Are you hearing me? You hearing me? Right, okay. Hearing God's word that way is an evidence of God's grace in your life. You see, sometimes I don't think we think about that. If we always perceive God's grace to God's grace as His doing something for us and not His grace doing something in us, we will miss some of the most significant blessings of God. Let me say that again. If your measure of God's grace is only measured by the things He does for you and not the thing He does in you, you're going to miss some of His greatest blessings. And you being able to hear the Word of God in the sense that you show up saying, hey, what are you saying? I need your Word to guide my life is a grace of God itself. To be convicted of sin, oh, is a beautiful thing, isn't it? How countercultural that is to say, but to be convicted of sin is a grace of God because my heart is not dead yet at that point. If I am feeling the guilt of God upon me, I don't want to be like the world and say, get rid of the guilt. I want to resolve the guilt. I want someone to take it from me, and that means the grace of God given to me. If I feel my guilt, that means I'm not dead. I like guilt, if I can say it that way. Because that means that something's wrong. And the reason the world doesn't like guilt is because they don't have a place to go with it. We do if you're a Christian, and it's right there. 
And so I take my guilt and say, look, you take it from me. And Jesus says, that's exactly why I came. And so hearing the word of God is a blessing of God. And so if you hear it, if you're feeling guilty, oh man, rejoice. But then do something about it. Come to the cross. I gotta wrap this up. So does God still speak today? Yes. How does God speak? He speaks through his word or he speaks in ways that are very normal. And what is our responsibility when God speaks? Faithfulness and obedience to live out his word or conform our life to his word and deliver it. What then is the benefit of God speaking? Let me just push a little past verse 19 and just read up to chapter 4 verse 1. Real quick, three verses. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Did you catch the reoccurrence of the phrase, the presence of God, five times in three verses? The benefit of God speaking is his very presence. And I love what happens between chapter 3, verse 21, and chapter 4, verse 1. You see, Samuel is so wanting to hear the word of God that he starts to be speaking it. And God says in verse 19, Samuel's wisdom now, not even Samuel's words would fall, but he's so in tune with God's word. By the time we get to chapter 4, God's words and Samuel's words were one and the same, and now it was Samuel's word going out. My point is this. If your life is so woven in the fabric of God's word and his wisdom, and you are desiring to hear it like Samuel, that you're giving your ear to it, that you're pursuing it, that you're studying it, that you're memorizing it, that you're putting your life here and the word here and having them talk to each other, there comes a point that the line that separates the word of God and your words becomes blurred because God longs to use people to deliver his word. And just like Samuel, his life and his words became a blessing. And in that way, Samuel is a prefiguring of Jesus himself in that God's word and his presence are always synonymous. Do you remember I said put a pin in that thing in Hebrews and John? John calls God, uh, Christ the word of God, and Matthew calls Christ God with us, God's word and God's presence always together. Samuel longed to be that way. And this is one of the most radical claims of Christianity, is that God still speaks today he spoke to the prophets. He speaks through his son. He speaks through his word. As we learned from Samuel, he even speaks through us as we are dialed into his word, hearing it, merging our lives with it. And as Samuel's life was a blessing to the whole nation because his words and God's words were one and the same, we want our lives to do the same. If you're a father, you want your parenting to be so wed with God's word that your children flourish because of it. If you're a business owner, you want your understanding of business ethics to be so merged with the word of God that your employees are blessed the same. Every station at life we are at, we want our words and God's words so blended together that whoever's under our influence, like the nation of Israel under Samuel, will bless and flourish because of that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the grace you have given to this church and this co congregation in its various forms over the years has been the blessing of hearing of the word of God. Lord, may we never tire of hearing your word. May we never tire of showing your word to our lives and having the two converse. May we never tire of conforming our lives to your truth. Because when we do, Lord, we flourish.
And we are blessed. And we would love the lives of people in this church, in this community, in our lives to flourish and bless because we are a people who not only hear but obey the word of God. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.